Very good. If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 14, or you can follow along in your bulletin, of course. This week we wrap up our sermon series titled Questions Jesus Asks. Next week we begin a new one where we look at some of the promises of God. And so we'll be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Originally it was verses 1 through 14, but there's a couple things later on in the, that I wanted to include. And, and, you know, there's just so much going on in our passage. I really not going to be able to cover everything. Chances are you're going to ha- maybe have a question or two. Why didn't you discuss this? That's all right. Uh, um, see me after uh, the worship service and we can talk those things through. But what we're going to focus on now is we're going to focus on the wonderful redemptive love of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. A work that has begun thousands of years ago and a work that is yet unfinished. A work of bringing rebellious sinners into the very household of God. And what we we're going to see is that God has a home for his children. But getting there and how we get there, it's hard to figure out. Do we really believe that God has a home for us? Has he promised to really bring us to himself? And if so, how do we get there? Jesus reassures his followers with a, with a question in which he essentially asks, would I lie to you about taking you to my Father in heaven? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, 
we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, spoken through your son, given life by your spirit. We pray that we would know more fully the truths that we are to believe, that our hearts might not be troubled, but rather may they rest assured in the truth that you share and in the son that you have given us, we pray. Amen. Have you ever been to a playground and seen a parent try to coax their toddler up the really big ladder or down the giant slide? They put on their little kitty voice and they'll say things like, Come on, Johnny, you could do it. It's not that high. Come on, I'm here. You've all heard parents do that. Maybe that's, maybe that's you. <laughs> um, when we read Jesus' words in verse 1, we can easily read them too lightly. They can ring in our ears like a parent coaxing a child at a park. Let not your hearts be troubled. But the context of these words will not let us relegate them to delicate coaxings spoken to alleviate a toddler's fear of the big kid slide. The disciples certainly would have pushed back at Jesus' words. You know the context, don't you? You remember it? They would have thought, let not our hearts be troubled. Are you kidding us? We've left everything to follow you. Our homes, our occupations, families, and our futures. We hung on every word of yours. We believed you. We bought into your Messiahship. And now you say you're leaving? Yeah, I know you keep saying that it's good for you to go and that, and that uh, it's better that you would be gone. But for now, to us, it feels like we have been abandoned. If this was a dating relationship, they might have thought the next words would have been, uh, you know, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> but this is no dating relationship. This was an all-in, follow-the-Messiah-King, come hell or high water. And now when the high water has come, it appears as if the Messiah is sailing away, leaving them with the hell on earth. Now that's the context of Jesus' words when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus isn't speaking into the trivial circumstances of their lives. Obviously, something deep and serious lay ahead of them. And it's true, within a few hours, Jesus' hands will be bound to a cross and nails will be driven through his hands and his feet. The one who says, let not your hearts be troubled, will then himself experiencing the, great, the greatest troubling of heart ever experienced by humanity. How are Jesus' disciples to process those days after the cross, those, those three days in the grave, the, 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 the weeks of random appearances and then disappearances, and then the final departure of their risen Lord into heaven itself? How would you have felt? How would have you have handled that? The one in whom you've come to trust and believe and follow will soon be gone. Would you not feel a sense of abandonment? Would you not feel confused, perhaps powerless? 
Christians, isn't it true today that even though we know the Lord, we can feel in some sense confused in our circumstances and and powerless and perhaps at sometimes even feel abandoned. Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of his disciples. And he knows what's going on in your hearts. Jesus commands them not to be troubled. The verb tense is an imperative. Jesus commands them, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, but how? What's the remedy for our troubled hearts? Jesus commands also, believe in God, believe also in me. When all hope seems lost, when confusion seems unbearable, Jesus says, believe all the more in your heavenly Father and in me, his Son. Christian, this message is as true today as it was in Jesus' day. When hardships of, of a life lived for Christ presses in on you, when confusion grips you, Jesus commands, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, instead of troubled hearts, we're to rest assured. Jesus commands his followers to live lives that are resting in his assurance, not troubled lives, lives trusting in God the Father and Jesus the Son. Now, I think at some level we get that, right? Well, yeah, that makes sense. All right. How do we do this? Um, we're going to investigate that by looking at three areas. First, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the promise, then the provision, and then the proof. The promise, the provision, and then the proof. First, the promise. There's a number of promises in this passage. Like I said, can't cover them all, but <clears throat> we're going to look at the first promise. And it's actually like a two-part promise. Um, Jesus promises to prepare us a place, and then he promises to take us there. Jesus promises uh, to prepare a place for us in his Father's house. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Imagine the tenderness of Jesus' voice. He's like, I know I've told you before. I know it's kind of gone in one ear and out the other, but I am going back to my home in heaven. And, and you need to know this. It's a big house. <laughs> There's lots and lots of room. And know this too, not only am I going there, but I'm going there with you on my mind. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. What words of comfort. And so Jesus is essentially saying, while you're back here on earth going through all that confusion and being perplexed of mind, you will be on my mind. I'm going to prepare for you an eternal home. And he says, I wouldn't say so if it wasn't true. Contemplate this. The disciples had never before been to heaven. And, and I'm kind of going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to guess nobody here in this room has ever before been to heaven. Anybody ever been to heaven before? All right. We're in the same boat. But Jesus came from heaven to earth. Heaven was and is his home. He has always belonged there. In eternity past, before creation even sprung into existence, heaven was Jesus' home. While he lived and ministered on earth apart from his heavenly Father, guess what? Heaven was his home. 
and for the eternal age to come, from now and into the forever into the future, heaven is his home. For you and I, though, this earth is the only place that we have ever known. And so it's no surprise that we fantasize ways to enjoy our time here. We anchor our hopes to longed-for possibilities here on earth. Some we achieve, yes, but many we do not. But we keep pressing on until we die. If I could just secure that one big account, if I could just have that one relationship that I longed for. But Jesus commands us to anchor our hopes in something else. In his Father's house. Our problem is, isn't it true? We don't. We're far too easily satisfied with, with making the best of what's here and now, no matter how miserable or broken it is. C.S. Lewis spoke about this tendency when he wrote, listen closely, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Do you see that in the world around you? Better yet, do you see that in yourself? Jesus says he's going to the Father's house to prepare a room for the children of God. By comparison, your, your, your best day now will seem as if a nightmare then. Jesus calls his disciples to trust him with this promise. If you belong to him, he has gone into heaven to prepare a place for you. And the place he's preparing for you, please understand, is not going to be like the DMV on the last day of the month. I've been there. I know what that's like. Sometimes I show up on the first and say, I'm sorry. (laughs) Can you help me? Now, when we arrive there, it will be as if God has perfectly planned it for us. Once again, C.S. Lewis, on the front of your bulletin, if you want to read along, you can. But there's a quote on there. It gives us a glimpse of how, uh, how it will feel for us, and how it perfectly fits us. He says, The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And a key itself a strange thing if you've never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape. Because it is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance. Or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it, stitch by stitch, as a glove is made for a hand. Oh, that we would believe that. 
This is part one of the promise. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his children. Part two is that he promises to return and take his children there. Verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, the Navy SEALs have a promise for all who belong to their brotherhood. The promise is you will never be left behind on the battlefield. And unfortunately... Many SEALs have given their lives to fulfill that commitment to that promise of leaving no one behind. Imagine the comfort to a Navy SEAL to know this as you are about to go out on a mission. How much more so should this promise of God comfort our troubled hearts this morning? Jesus promises to come and to take his brothers and sisters home. And to drive home the point Check out a little later in the text, in verse 18. What does he say? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come. What a striking image. An orphan is a child who has been abandoned by their parents, either through death or neglect or other circumstances. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, makes us his children. Everyone pities the orphan, and rightly so. But there is to be no pity for us who are in Christ Jesus. We've been washed with the blood of Christ. We've been prepared by Christ for God's heavenly home for us. And guess what? This was all the Father's idea. Elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 John, the same guy, gentleman who wrote this uh, letter we're reading, um, the gospel reading, he wrote this elsewhere. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not many of us know what it's like to be an orphan. I guess we all kind of get a sense of abandonment. We've all experienced that at some point, I think. <clears throat> I have a friend of mine who really was an orphan. Her name is Andrea. And uh, I know Andrea from my youth ministry back in St. Louis. I knew her when she was in high school. And, and she actually came to be a part of our youth ministry team as a volunteer. And, then, and I hired her to be on staff with us. And that's how I came to know her story. Andrea's mother and father were divorced when she was five years old. When she was seven years old, one of her mother's live-in boyfriends, abused her. And instead of kicking out the abusive boyfriend, she kicked out Andrea. Andrea spent 10 years in a very difficult foster home. Now, most foster homes are wonderful and nice, but this was a very trying and challenging time for her. She felt like an orphan throughout the whole time in this home. They had another daughter. They treated her quite well. She got all the nice new clothes and presents. For an example, Andrea was only allowed $250 a year for clothing. That's what the state gave, and she would get no more. She told me the story that one time she got birthday presents. She got shoes. And this lady took the shoes back to the store after scolding her and pocketed the money for herself. It's no surprise that Andrea lived a life of fear, a life full of lies and deceit and cunning and trickery. After 10 years, she was finally kicked out of that house. But before then, she had met a Christian on her cross-country team, 
a girl who loved her well, was kind and gentle, who invited her to her youth group where she first thought it was kind of a cult. <laughs> what do you mean? These, there's these kids who like really like, like Jesus and like to sing songs and read the Bible. It seemed kind of cultish to her. But she made a lot of friends there who really loved her. They understood her story and loved her nonetheless. When she was kicked out of her house, one of these families who had gone to this church took Andrea in. They had already had, they already had seven kids of their own, age 2 to 18. And they knew Andrea's story. And they said to her, we know your history. We know your lies. We know your deceits. But we welcome you nonetheless into our home. It's there where she experienced not only the love of God on earth, but the love of God from heaven as she came to trust in Christ. And then a number of years later, when she was really grown, uh, she was in college and she's back home and, and this family sat her down and they said, we need to talk to you. And she was a little worried, as orphans would be. And they said, you know, Andrea, we love you like you are our very own. We want to adopt you into our family. That story is a picture, a portrait, really, truly, of of God's adoptive love for rebellious, selfish sinners like you and me. God knows who we are before we come to him. He knows our lies and deceits and the ways in which we build our own record and steal his glory. And he says, you're going to be in my house nonetheless. I'm going to purify you through my son. I'm going to bring you into my home. I'm going to adopt you. So Christian, you are not an orphan. And if you have been acting that way, stop. You're a dearly loved child of God. When you find yourself in circumstances where you find yourself pitying yourself and wondering if you've been abandoned, no, look to the cross, look to your Savior, look up towards heaven and be reminded of what God has done for you. You've been adopted into his very home. That's the twofold promise that Jesus gives us. Jesus promises to make and prepare a place for us and then he promises to take us there. Now for the provision. In verse 4, Jesus says something that not only reveals the disciples' shortcomings, but ours too. A shortcoming for which Jesus is the only provision for our need. What do I mean? Look at verse 4. Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. To which Thomas, speaking for the eleven, there's only eleven now, replies with great honesty, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas's need is humanity's need. Thomas articulates the human condition. We do not know the way to God. We all share that as human beings. Now, it's true the world is full of so-called paths to God. And skeptics will mock the fact that there's so many religions in the world. They'll even they'll say, see, there's so many different paths to God that that's evidence itself that there is no God. To which I would say this. I argue that the, that the presence of so many religions in our world is a sign that there actually is a God above. It's, a, it's proof that what Jesus says to Thomas here is true for all of us. We long for the divine but we do not know how to get there. 
We all have those God-shaped holes in our souls that only God can fill that Lewis is speaking about. So it's no surprise that there's more religions on earth than there are societies on earth. Like Thomas, we're all left not knowing where we are going, but we try anyway. Hence, all the religions in the world. Fallen man, made in God's image, tries to reach up to God, but cannot. We are left at God's mercy. The Christian author Rico Tice summarizes the dilemma that we have. We are dependent upon God to truthfully reveal himself to us. No matter how hard we try to find him, he must initiate. Here's what Rico Tice says. He says, imagine you wanted to get to know the Queen of England personally. You could try writing a letter or ringing her, but don't bother looking in the phone book. Or you could try standing outside her gates with a very big sign... I don't recommend flying a light aircraft into her garden because the last person who tried that got arrested. (laughs) The fact is, you wouldn't get very far with any of these approaches. Your only chance would be if she decided she wanted to meet you and came out of the palace and introduced herself personally to you. point is, no human being can ever truthfully, reliably find their way to God. We are dependent upon God to come out and reveal himself to us. God must come out of his palace on a personal level. And what, what Jesus is telling Thomas this morning, and what he's telling us is that God has done that through his son. God has graciously provided a way to himself. And Jesus says, I am the way. Please consider what I'm going to say. All other religions offer you some sort of path or way to the, to the deity or to nirvana or to whatever the end game is for the various religion, maybe a better reincarnated life or something. The way is always a list of things to do or not to do. Sometimes it comes with a manual or some sacred writings that by following these things, you find your way to the deity or whatever. Some people think that that's what Christianity is. It's a program. You follow these rules and regulations and you get your way to the deity. But Jesus tells Thomas and he tells us, he says, the way is not a program. It's a person. The way to God is not a program, it's a person. Jesus says, I am the way. Anchor your life to me. I will take you to the Father. What a gracious and generous offer that we have from Jesus. And so Jesus says to Thomas, and also to all of us who believe, he says, it's amazing, he says, yes, you do know the way. You know the way because you know me. The way to heaven is relational. It's through the Son of God. Jesus says, I'm the way. Now, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying three things that he is in this world, uh, but the emphasis falls on the first. He is the way. He's God's appointed way of bringing lost sheep, lost people back into God's household. But Jesus is also the way because he is the truth. He truthfully discloses the Father because unlike any other, 
He has seen the face of God. Or more importantly, he is God incarnate. Jesus is the way because he is the truth. So too he is the way because he is also the life. You know, John begins his gospel by giving us a little backstory on who this Jesus character is before he like goes through his life story. I encourage you to, to read the first chapter of John's gospel if you haven't. But he tells us that, you know what? Jesus, this guy I'm about ready to tell you about, he's always existed. He created all things. In fact, he is God himself. This whole world came into existence because of him. And then he says these remarkable words. In him was life. In him was life. Now, John doesn't mean that Jesus was the life of a party. (laughs) No, Jesus is the life-giving divine son of God who spoke creation into existence. And because this is his identity, we can trust him when he says he will recreate our lives. You remember when Jesus rose uh, Lazarus from the dead? He said to Martha, what did he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. How is this possible for us? Remarkably, the only way this is possible is for the author of life to give up his life. Jesus knows this is coming. That's why he says in verse 19, he says, Yet in a little while the world will see me no more. He knows he's going to the cross. But then knowing he'll rise from the grave, he says, But you will see me. And then he says these words. Check this out. He says, Because I live, you also will live. Though the giver of all life gives his life, death cannot hold him. And because he will rise and has risen, all who trust in him, his life becomes their life. As he comes alive, we come alive. Because Christ lives, you also will live. Now, Christian, do you believe this? Do you see how believing this can can still your troubled hearts. Now, many people take offense at Jesus' words. I'm the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what we call an exclusive truth claim. No one ever gets to God except through Jesus. Jesus, says, Jesus doesn't say, I am a way or a truth or a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way or truth or life. Now, words of Jesus like these, it sets our pluralistic society's teeth on edge. We need to see that Jesus isn't offering himself up as an a la carte entree on the buffet of of religious pluralism, as if he's saying, you know, take a helping of Socrates and add a little bit of me and a side of Buddhism and top it off with a little Scientology and some reincarnation. Jesus isn't offering himself as some competing moral guide to point you on a path to heaven. He must be your way or there is no other way. He doesn't allow you to pick or choose what you wish. 
He has given you himself as the only avenue to the Father. Now, perhaps you're here and you take exception to that. I totally get it. I used to take exception to it as well. Let me offer this little illustration. And if you need more than that, which chances are you probably will, uh, Mere Christianity is a great book. Tim Keller's uh, The Reason for God on our bookshelf back there. Just grab one of those and read through it. But let me offer you this illustration. Say there's a hurricane, hits Long Island, and the power's out again. I wouldn't be a surprise, all right? And it's out for weeks. But somehow, walled bombs is open. <laughs> they are the only supermarket that is open, and they're giving out free food. Now, would you stand outside of wall bombs in a picket line saying how unfair it is that wall bombs is the only supermarket open? Would you raise your sign that says, I stand with Schmidt's Market? <laughs> Would you argue over how much more appealing the entryway is to Citarella? No, you would be thankful and you would enter. Similar with God, he sends us his son, the only way to the father. It's his son for crying out loud. He is the way. Our proper response is to be grateful, to be thankful and enter, not pick at God's design of how things are, not to cry and moan and hold up signs saying, well, that's not fair. We're to enter and find his peace. God's provision is his own son. He is the way. Anchor your life to him. He will bring you home to his father in heaven. Now for the proof. We'll move quickly through this. How can we know that, we're, that our lives are safe in the Father's hands and that Jesus has said, um, all that he said is true? There's multiple truths, there's multiple proofs here in our passage. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the fact that he says there are greater works that will be done by his followers. Um, we read that in verses 12 through 14. Uh, there's the presence of the helper or Holy Spirit that we read of in verses 15 through 17. Jesus says he will take up residence in us. So that God's life, Jesus' life, will be in us. You've experienced that if you're in Christ, right? Um, Then there's, of course, the resurrection itself. Proof that Jesus' words are true. We see that in verses 19 and 20. The fourth proof that we're going to look at is, is this. Jesus says you can believe him because he and the Father are one. They're, they're one in unity. Verse 7, Jesus says... If you know me, then you know the Father. Now, evidently this caused as much confusion uh, then as it does today. Philip takes the microphone and he says, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Philip articulates the longing of every godly soul. We long to see God in his glory. Just as Moses Moses was relegated to to behold the glory of God as Moses hid behind this cleft in the rock and just saw just a partial bit of it, so too the people of God long to behold the glory of God. Philip says, "Just, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus doesn't answer how we'd expect. We'd expect him to say, All right, Philip, just wait a little while. I know you're going to die in a few years, and guess what? You're going to see him face to face. You know, just hold on. You're going to see him. He doesn't give him that answer. He says, have I been with you so long, 
and you still don't know me, Philip. Now, even these words are odd. We would expect Jesus to say what? Have I been with you so long and you still don't know the Father? That's what we'd expect him to say. But what does he say? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? What an odd statement. He goes on to tell Philip and us that he isn't just the way to the Father. He is the face of the Father here on earth. Verses 9 through 11. Have I been with you so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, as his disciples look into his face and and, and listen to the words that he says and beholds the things that that he is doing, they are beholding the very God, the Father, in Jesus' life. Jesus gives three examples. First, he says, I speak the Father's words, verse 10. Second, I do the Father's works, verses 10 and 11. Third, I display the Father's glory, verse 13. And today for us, as we gaze upon the face of Jesus Christ through faith, as we see him in scripture, we see the Father. In Christ, you hear the wisdom of God Almighty. In Christ, you see the power of the Father to heal and to restore. In Christ, you see the patience and the long-suffering of his heavenly Father. In Christ, you see both the Father's revulsion towards our selfish pridefulness, as well as his willingness to forgive us our sin. In Christ, you see God's unconditional, covenantal love of the Father. In Christ, you see the Father embracing the unembraceable and calling them his children. John expects, or Jesus expects us to see the Father in him. And he and the Father. There's a oneness. I hope you find reading the Bible and studying it to be fascinating, right? I mean, this is amazing what we see here. Wrap your head around this. Resident in the very life of Jesus is the life of God the Father. One commentator makes this striking point. Listen closely. He says, It is not simply that Jesus is sent on a divine mission on behalf of the Father, but that the Father himself is on a divine mission in the life of his Son. Beautiful, huh? It is not simply that Jesus is sent on a divine mission on behalf of the Father, but that the Father himself is on a divine mission in the life of his Son. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. If you're here today and you don't know God, get to know him through his son. There is no other way. If you are here this morning and you belong to Christ, if your life has been anchored to his life, may his words this morning be an encouragement to you 
I don't know the details of your lives. I don't know how to properly apply this to your life. But Jesus knows that there will be troubles ahead. He knows that our hearts have a tendency to be troubled and not assured. And so he spoke to them and he speaks to us. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of truth. You, it's your words, speaking through your Son, applied to your, our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which you have given us. May we really believe this. May we know that, that, that we are not orphans. We're dearly treasured, adopted children of God. And that our, our Savior, our Lord, has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. It is as sure as we are here today that this will happen, that we will be there one day. May this reality calm our hearts. Uh, may we live with great assurance and hope and faith until that day comes, we pray. Amen.